Is AI going to take over the world? What will our future society look like if we continue on the path we're on? You know, a lot of sci-fi writers have painted a lot of pictures of what the future looks like. Today's guest was a leader in big tech, and he's an author that paints a very interesting picture of what the future looks like. Today's guest is Gary Benjigar. Are you ready to live life to the full? Are you ready to rise up and live a life of honor? Are you ready to boldly step into a life of courage? This is the Manlyhood Mancast. And here's your host, Josh Atcher. Gentlemen, welcome back to the Manlyhood Mancast. I'm your host, Josh Hatcher, and today's guest is a true pioneer in the tech industry. He's a best-selling author. He was eBay's first chief financial officer, and he's worked in several other big tech companies. He's written a futuristic novel that offers insights into the challenges that we could face in the future as our lives become more intertwined and wrapped up in tech and artificial intelligence. So what does that look like? Gary F. Benjir is the guest on today's Manlyhood Mancast. But before we get into that, I just want to encourage you guys, if you want to join an elite group of men who want to better themselves, I want you to go to manlyhood.com slash brotherhood. I'd love to have you as a part of the Arrows and Iron Brotherhood. We've got lots of good stuff on the way there, so please go check it out, sign up for it. I love you guys. Let's get right into the conversation with Gary. Gary, it is great to have you on the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and Josh, thank you for uh, inviting me here to the Mancast. This sounds like a lot of fun today. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a great uh, podcast, man. I and I say that not just because it's mine, but I get to have conversations with some of the coolest people, uh, including yourself, who was a CFO at at eBay, and uh, you're an accomplished sci-fi writer and futurist. So you've got uh, a lot of experience and perspectives that I think would be really interesting to the men that listen. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's been it's been an interesting career, and it uh, and it continues now. So no, no too early to stop. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about uh, your experience in Silicon Valley, kind of how you you uh, started your career. Yeah, sure. So I I spent on the order of uh, thirty years in um, in high tech, um, and uh, I was um, you know with the business goal was a management consultant, uh, and then I spent a bunch of time uh, working on all kinds of technologies, and I have to say I was fortunate to actually uh, participate in so many. Um, I was in uh, life sciences for half a dozen years. Um, computer peripherals, you know, hard drives, um, uh, that sort of thing, uh, and uh, the uh, chip design. So um, uh, all the semiconductor uh, industry for several years, four years, uh, high-tech windmills, um, streaming video over the internet, the stuff that we're doing right now, and then uh, eBay. And I, as you said, I was CFO at eBay uh, from the beginning um, and was there as we grew to several thousand folks and uh, selling $100 billion worth of stuff and uh, grew that stuff and uh, went through the the, uh, the IPO and the secondary where we raised $1.4 billion, which was a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, so, yes, I had a great time in Silicon Valley, and I was just fortunate to 
be in so many parts of it so that I really got a sense of a bunch of the technology. And that was, um, that's some of the basis for me uh, in this next phase with uh, writing a science fiction futuristic book. Yeah, I, I can imagine that working in tech, you can, it, it almost kind of adds some juice, you know, to the, to the work that you're doing. Cause yeah, first of all, I love sci-fi, especially, you know, dystopian future stuff and, <laughs> You know, like that, that's kind of the, the perspective I always see the world through, you know, like, okay, this is how this is going to play out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my, my book, uh, which is Unfettered Journey is, uh, you know, is it utopian or is it dystopian? Uh, the reader can decide, but what I really tried to do is to provide a hard science view of the future. That is what is highly likely and and the reason for that is that, quite honestly, I think that too much science fiction um, is uh, not helpful for us to think about the future. It's, you know, it, you know, it goes off in crazy tangents. It takes some idea and takes it to its absurd, um, you know, endpoint. Um, uh, and then, and then some of the science is wrong. So, you know, if you wrote a science fiction book before 2007, you probably didn't include the iPhone, right? And so, right. and so, and so as a result of that, a lot of science fiction writers, I think, um, sort of give up and, you know, you've got dragons and you've got uh, fantasy. So, um, and that doesn't help us decide what are the really highly likely um, things that will be in our future, because then you have to ask yourself the question, well, if, if we kind of know what's highly likely, we're more likely to solve the re real problems that will be out there. I have been a fan recently of watching some older sci-fi movies and, and reading uh -huh. some sci-fi stuff and starting to see those weird times when they called something, when they got it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, Ray, was it Ray Bradley who uh, predicted the uh, geosynchronous satellite, right? Yeah, yeah, that that kind of stuff is so crazy, and I I love it. You know, well, I, another even kind of shorter term example because it's almost like a, you know, I think of the the Netflix show. Well, I don't know if it was Netflix originally, but that's where I saw it. Uh, the Black Mirror show. You yes, know? yes. It, it like calls out like, it's a social commentary, and then you start to see where, you know, the maybe where tech or uh, or these things kind of break down and and almost like a you know a little bit of a warning. You know, so so that's well, kind I, of I agree with you. Black Mirror is sort of very dystopian, pointing out some of the the worst things that can happen. And uh, yeah, that's um, I mean, I think that's that was an interesting show. But I would again ask, what is most likely, and then let's worry about those problems. So you know, as an example, you know, uploading brains. Ah, oh, come on, that's just not going to happen. Um, you know, robots out to kill us. Uh, uh, um, I think that's less likely than the fact that the darn things are going to be annoying. So, you know, so what is most likely? And that's that's where I uh, where I uh, head in this book as as the basis behind the book. So what do you see as we look forward into the future as some of those things that would be most likely? OK, great question, Josh. So. Um, first thing is, I think in this next century, the two most important technologies are bioscience and AI and robotics. That's the first statement. Second thing I'll say is I think that bio, and, and I was in bioscience for half a dozen years, okay? Um, and I think that bioscience will phenomenally change our lives in 
um, you know, the next century, century and a half. My, my book takes place in 2161, 140 years from now. Um, but what I like to say is, you know, so we'll, we'll, we'll mostly cure most cancers in that time. Um, you know, there's all kinds of diseases we have now that'll just disappear, right? We won't, we actually won't notice. The interesting thing about the biosciences, I think for most of it, we won't notice because, you know, we'll live another 20 years or so and uh, on average, and uh, some people will be living to 120, right? And um, I don't think we'll live forever. I don't think we'll figure that out. Like some of the, uh, the futurists, uh, I won't name them. <laughs> I think they're crazy. <laughs> We're not going to find the, the, the secret to immortal life. Um, but, but I think we'll live a lot longer and I think we'll live healthy lives. But that was, that's just will be normal. So, so that's bioscience. Um, and and I can, we can talk more about what I think are some of the likely things that will be in our, in our typical life that, um, that might sound a little weird today, but you know, they'll, they'll just be part of life in terms of bioscience. Um, but the second one, AI and robotics, I think that that will be the technology that will most change what it feels like to live on this earth. Uh, because, and, and here's the argument on that. Um, so have we, have you seen the um, Boston Dynamics dancing robots, right? Mm -hmm. seen the videos. Okay, so everyone's seen that. Um, you know, you've seen the, I think at the Olympics, um, there was a robot throwing um, free throws from the center court and hitting every one of them, right? So uh, it looks like these robots are right there on top of us. And, and, and in fact, many of them are. They, you know, they're building our cars. Um, you know, the uh, Amazon's filling their warehouses with robots that are taking over all these jobs. Elon Musk uh, has the idea that Tesla will be 100% robotic at some point. Uh, so yeah, they're, that's progressing. But I think two things. One is, I don't think it will be you know, 10, 20 years from now. I think this is a, a long process. It's more akin to the automobile. You know, Henry Ford, early 1900s, invented the, the car, mass production, but it took like a century for the car to be the car we have today. You know, you had to get the roads, you had to have the legal infrastructure to deal with what happens when people get uh, hurt or killed. Uh, and all that took a long time. Uh, but now we are, you know, order of a century later and we've got the car. So taking those two ideas, I'm saying that I think that robots will be a lot longer, it will take longer to get to there. But I think that it is inevitable that it will get there. And the reason is that the economics will drive it. You know, we've got, uh, we've got the Ukraine war going on, right? They're using uh, drones like crazy there, if you're following any of the military strategists that are uh, listening here. Uh, uh, you know, there's, we're seeing the first 20th century, century war, really. Um, and uh, the military is going to pay for these robots. Uh, keep a guy from getting killed, they're going to have a robot out there on the battlefield. Um, and, um, and more and more of these jobs will be done um, by robots. And, um, and it's, at some point, um, you're going to see them all around us. So um, I was, uh, I'm on the board of the Santa Fe Institute and I attended a workshop on AI and uh, with some of the world's experts. And we, we spent three days in Santa Fe talking about the future of AI. And there was one of the presenters who had a uh, 
presentation talking about jobs being lost. And he had this idea of a, of a topology, hills and mountains. And the idea was this, like as water rose, that was taking jobs away. That was his analogy. And so, so the question is, if you can imagine that, uh, as the water rises, what are the first jobs to go? And what are those jobs at the top of those hills and mountains, right? Uh, you know, maybe at the top of the mountain is some job like yours, Josh, <laughs> you know, podcaster. It's hard to imagine a robot doing this. Um, uh, and I like to argue that one of those jobs is roofer. You know, the guy who climbs up on the roof with a bunch of shingles and has to tack them down. It's pretty darn hard to automate that. And so at some point, um, roofers will be making three, four $400,000 a year. And, and of course the economics will drive it and they'll basically build a robot that's kind of our size. And, um, and at some point we'll have robots walking around. Well, we do have, we do have 3d printers that can print an entire building from foundation to the top now. So maybe it'll just be a matter of rethinking roof, you know, <laughs> that could be, it could, it could. okay. And so that case, the job goes away without the robot, right? <laughs> right so right. Uh, the need uh, for roofs goes away. <laughs> yes, right, right, right. Uh, but but I think I think then it's highly likely, that, highly highly likely. And it's, you can almost see it because it's it's an A to Z engineering problem. There's nothing that's unknown in this. It's just working out the details, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, and then now think about that. When what's the end of that? The end of that is when robots build robots, which is already happening. Mm -hmm. When robots are you know mining the ores and smelting the metal and building the factories that build the robots. When that happens, when robots build robots, which I'm saying is highly likely, then what happens? So, you know, today we think about labor productivity for economics, right? How much is, um, is productivity increasing every year? And it's been increasing since about 1870, it did jump-started uh, dramatically. And so, you know, we're talking two, 3% a year, right? Uh, that causes this enormous compounding. Well, that's based upon individual people working more efficiently. But what happens when you have 20 robots working for you because they're just made by the robots, right? So suddenly for the first time in human history, the individual uh, activity of each of us is not tied to the economic output, right? And when that happens, we're going to have a ton of stuff, just a ton of stuff. Okay, uh, if you run the models forward, that suggests that by uh, you know 140 years, uh, we're going to have 10 to 20 times as much stuff per person in the U.S. as we have today. Okay, so there'll be a, like a lot of stuff, but there will be no jobs. So think about that. So, so, and, and what I'm suggesting is that that's a highly likely future. Okay. And so what's really different this time, what's really different is that, um, um, you know, it's, it's um, a completely different economic system. Right. And I know there's a lot of talk of that right now with the World Economic Forum and, and other people that are talking about you know, starting to transform the way that we think of the economy. And to, to be honest with you, I mean, I'm, you know, diehard, red-blooded capitalist American. So I, I understand, I, I mean, I think capitalism as a system isn't a bad thing. I think that's yes. a good thing. I also, you know, do see that because people have the, the, cap the capability of being bad, that that system doesn't always work the way it's supposed to work either. So, 
yeah, there there will be some a day when there will be some changes made to the way that we view the world. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, to your point, uh, yeah, as you can see, I'm a capitalist too. Um, the market system does a good job of helping to uh, make things more efficient. So as an example, the people who fled Castro's Cuba and went to Florida, um, they are, uh, you know, samples of, you know, hundreds of thousands now. Uh, on average, they have seven times as much stuff as the people they left behind. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the capitalist system is pretty efficient. I mean, it's one sort of anecdotal measurement, but um, so that's good. Um, but as you, as you say, uh, what happens then when we get to this new phase when there are so few jobs that will be quote unquote necessary, right? Um, and who owns the robot factories at that point? <laughs> so, right. Uh, Right, yeah. because then, then you start getting into the political side of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So here I am. I, I'm with you. I'm a, I'm an, I'm a uh, believer in the market system because it makes things more efficient. Um, but I do think we need, um, we can't have an unmitigated system. And by the way, think, think about what's happening in the future. You know, Amazon has lots of data on all of what we buy, right? eBay has a lot of data on what we buy and what we wish to buy. And so if you think of all that data, that data itself um, in some ways well, very much can replace what is the mechanism in the capitalist system. You know, you have these old supply and demand curves, you know, if there's not enough stuff out there, the price goes up and then more manufacturers come in and, and make more of it and then the price comes back down, et cetera. So the idea is that price mediates between supply and demand. That's, you know, economics 101. But mm -hmm. um, if you have all this data, then you could feed the data into the robot factories and they could statistically predict what we're gonna need and want next and probably do a better job and more efficiently because you don't have to wait. Uh, there's not that lag. And um, so out comes the stuff that we really want. <laughs> so uh, so it, 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 you can see a system that's very efficient, which is the great news about uh, market capitalism, but that um, that doesn't need those mechanisms. And, um, and, so, and so I can see, a, and then, then coupled with that is the fact that all these jobs will go away. So if you have all these jobs going away, um, honestly, I don't think that, um, you know, if we're going to have enough demand for all the poets and writers and musicians to to make up for that. And uh, so jobs will be um, dear. People want a job that's kind of interesting and cool, right? Yeah, I. that is a really good question. You know, like, it, well, and again, I mean, so like I said, I, you know, I, I'm the contrarian a little bit. So I, I think of that view, I think of that future and like, well, so we're even having some of that right now. You talk about the, the, like the corporation able to predict what you want. You know, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I have thought something, right? <laughs> I've thought I need to get a new pair of shoes. I haven't <laughs> yes. said it out loud. I haven't said it out loud to anybody. <laughs> Siri wasn't listening on you, huh? <laughs> I get an ad served within, you know, a couple days of me thinking in my head, I need a new pair of shoes. And I know that the reason that that ad is served to me is because they're, you know, the I bought my shoes off Amazon. And I know that Amazon is tracking how long a pair of shoes should last. That's right. right? I know that I may have said something that, yes, a microphone with AI enabled is listening to that might indicate, you know, 
that there's some shoes that need to be, you know, there, there's some predictive algorithms already telling me what. So where my hangup is, and, you know, I know that you are a man who has lived his life in big tech. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, my hangup is because I'm starting to see big tech starting to uh, dictate and start to control uh you know, speech on their platform and to, you know, things like that, where I'm starting to wonder, like, you know, like I know that AI can only do what, it, what it's programmed to do, right? Like, yes, you know, so a robot can only do, build what it's programmed to build. The hope is that people that are in charge of all of that have a good soul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's been proven in many cases that we can talk about that that doesn't seem to be evident, right? <laughs> right. I, I saw um, – I, I, this is a big hang-up for me because I just – like uh, lately I've seen so many – so much censorship, right? And I know that it's not technically censorship because, you know, Facebook's platform, for example, Facebook owns the platform. So they have a right to say we're not going to share this – allow this content to be shared on our platform. Just like my front porch. If somebody comes on my front porch and starts, you know, calling my wife something horrible, I have the right to punch him in the nose or tell him to leave, right? Um, like, that's my front porch. The problem is we don't see Facebook as their front porch. We see it as our free speech public square platform. And I saw somebody the other day shared a, a picture of a cowboy carrying a baby calf like he was rescuing the calf, and there was a Bible verse on it. And it had a content warning that it might contain dangerous content. And I know that no person out there flagged it and said, oh, I mean, that was a, a robot that misread something, you know? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so so AI is now being used to enforce, I mean, and again, I know it's not technically the freedom of speech, but it is in our minds, you know, AI is being used to enforce free speech. And yes, yes, yes. Well, yeah, you've you've got a number of issues there. Let, let me make right. two points. One is one is um, uh, just uh, this summer um, I went to uh, my Harvard Business School reunion. Okay, and uh, and you know when they do these things, they have like cases like we sat there and had to had to answer to. And uh, there's a case that was a certain social media company. Um, and the question was whether they were doing a good job or whether they should be more regulated because they weren't. And the interesting thing is this class of Harvard Business School um, veterans and people with, you know, illustrious careers, 90% of the class agreed they should be better regulated because they were doing such a poor job which is maybe shocking to most audiences to think this place of capitalism would believe that. So that's that's one point. Uh, the, the, the second is, is that I do think that the issue of privacy is a really important um, question in the future. And that's in my book too. You know, it raises the question of how much control will the government have and should it have? And, you know, how much um, can we be private? Um, do we have a right to be per forgotten on the internet? And and that brings up another quick question, which I'll make also quickly. But the just like we have to worry about whether the people that are controlling corporations have good souls, we also have to worry about whether the government and the people controlling that have good souls. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly true. So, That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, we're we're kind of at the mercy of that. You know. Yeah. Well. Well. Unfortunately, the way it's going, if you've been following the politics in um, China with uh, Xi. 
uh, of course, getting another five-year turn uh, uh, in office and looking like he's heading for a lifetime ter uh, term. Um, and the way he's taken China, that may be something to watch very carefully as how we do not want it to happen in terms of mm. personal rights and privacy and government control. Well, and that's like when we see Elon Musk, which I know right now, you know, a lot of people almost view him as a hero because he's coming in and telling, you know, he's going to say, okay, well, we're going to make Twitter about free speech again, right? But then he's also talking about how what he really wants to build is this thing called X, <laughs> which is the <laughs> universal app that has everything in it. Yes, right, right. Including cars, you know, and, and all of that. And it just kind of makes me think like, okay, so again, we have the opportunity for that social credit system to be created. You know, that idea that, you know, your entire existence can be manipulated or controlled based off of somebody else's algorithms that they've programmed and told what to do, you know, and their yeah. values. So that, yeah. I think that is a challenge. And, and, and that is an important challenge. So, so um, to my book, I was trying to uh, point out what are the highly likely future and then what are the real issues? And mm -hmm. privacy is one that's raised in there. As I said, this issue of what happens when robots do so many different jobs and they're walking around among us. Um, you know, there's the, the restaurant that um, has all of the servers are robots and, you know, the stores have robots doing all the work, et cetera, et cetera. You get into a car and it's self-driving. You get on an airplane and it takes off and lands, et cetera. Robots are the, the, the flight attendants. And imagine that world um, in 140 years, or it's, it's gonna take a while, but, um, that's the end result that I say is highly likely. And so mm -hmm. how do we cross that chasm from today to there? Uh, and I think, so that's a really important problem that I think is highly likely. And it's, it's one we need to focus on. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's why, you know, a guy like me who grew up in the middle of nowhere, you know, very rural, I live on the edge of the Allegheny national forest, which is millions and millions of acres of just trees. Um, you know, I'm the guy that's like, sometimes I think the best thing that could, and I'm, listen, I, I'm also the guy that has an Alexa in four rooms of my house and I wear a Fitbit, you know what I mean? I <laughs> love tech, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm a podcast host, you know, and I, so I love tech, I get it. But sometimes when I think about these things, I'm like, man, you know, the best thing that could happen is if North Korea let off a nuclear bomb in our atmosphere and just EMP'd everything out. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a military uh, strategist aficionado, and I've been following the Ukraine war quite uh, closely. And there was just a thread that says, yeah, that's not going to happen. The EMPs don't work that way. So anyway, to, besides that. Uh, uh, I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually grew up in, um, in Ohio, in the Ohio Valley. So close okay. to, you know, and I am. You know, hiked uh, some of the the Appalachian Trail there. So yeah, I know that. Uh, yeah. Which which um, there is something about um, you know getting away from this tech. So uh, that I think is another interesting theme in my book, Unfettered Journey for Your Audience. Um, that is, oh, let me just say that about a third of the book, um, if you get into it, um, asks in a concrete uh, sense the question: Could you live without any of the technology we have today? No. What what would happen if all the technology is taken away from you? If you were sent out into the you know the desert, into the mountains, and you had to live off the land, you know you had to grow your own wheat, you had to um, use your bow to shoot your own deer, right? You had to make a living off the land. Could you do it? 
Uh, and so uh, that's that was a lot of fun to write <laughs> and to think about. I got a whole shelf full of survivalist books <laughs> to figure out people who are really into that now. Uh, so uh, and uh, you know. You know, could we do that? Uh, I mean, uh, there's a character in my book that says, you know, uh, this is in the future, 2161. He says, you know, people are clueless. No one could do this stuff. They can't survive out there. But uh, some of my characters uh, are forced to try. I think the good thing as we're talking about that future, right, that like there's enough people out there that are so uh, – enamored with the past. I mean, we have civil war reenactors and revolutionary war reenactors who love that history so much that they work hard to preserve it. And because we have all of the books and we're so, there are libraries that want to preserve information. I think that um, some of the, and, and every, what, every so many years, you know, what's trending is something that's old, that history comes back again, you know, like somebody's like, Knitting becomes a trend again, you know? <laughs> so I think that the day will come when, you know, even though those things happen, there will always be the information that we need to be able to learn how to do those things. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think, I think fortunately we've got all the information in Wikipedia and YouTube and, you know, we won't lose that. It's, it's copied too many places. That's great. Um, the, the, uh, I, I think an interesting question though, is that, that sort of, urge for the past and other times that is always uh tends to be romanticized you know you know we can be out there on this scottish highlands or something right uh, but um but we like our tech right um and and why do we romanticize that well i think part of it is is because modern society is so complicated right uh, there's so much stuff coming at you all the time. You know, you're if you're and if you if you allow that to happen, you've got this social media coming at you. You've you've got so much stuff filling up your time that you don't have time to think. And so we sort of yearn for that time to have that peace of mind, um, and we romanticize that. And I think I, I think the reality is that. Um, if you were forced to do that, then you'd say, geez, I wish I had some of my tech back. <laughs> so, 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 you know, the world is complicated. It's complex. Uh, it's a complex nonlinear system. That's what Santa Fe Institute uh, teaches. Um, and, um, and, and the reality is, is that um, we, we like that, um, the world that comes out of it because it's easier. Um, but um, we have to figure out how we find some headspace. Uh, in all of this to uh, keep not only keep our sanity, but uh, to be real men, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I, I think, you know, that's important. I think that, you know, as, as men, there's a degree of, you know, like if we all think about our priorities in the world, right? Like our family is, should be one of the very first things or our faith or, things that are inherently very, 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 very old <laughs> very, yeah. that don't need much tech to exist, you know, and, um, you know, friendship, brotherhood, <laughs> strength, <Yes. laughs> you know, um, you know, th those are the things that, that if we really stop and think about our priorities, priorities, those are the things that are the most important. And I think that with or without tech, those things remain most important. And as you know, in the times when people forget those, which I think happens a lot, you know, it, it tends to cycle back around again, you know? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, I, th I think uh, I think this audience would would particularly enjoy one of my characters named Eloy, who's one of those guys who can get out there and survive. Um, and so that's uh, not too much of a spoiler. He's he's uh, he's one of the characters in that part of the book that deals with can you live out with um, just off of your own wits and living off the land. Um, the, the the book is is uh, focuses on uh, two protagonists, Joe, um, who's uh, actually an AI scientist. He's he's uh, his his job is to try to how to figure out how to make AIs conscious, and he doesn't really think that's going to ever happen. So he's kind of stuck. And uh, and then he comes uh, in contact with um, uh, another character, and she is very much a fighter. Um, and um, anyway, um, stuff happens <laughs> to those yeah. two characters. And I think uh, um, you know this this character Joe. Uh, you're in his head. You're um, you're asking, well, um, what do I do next? And 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 uh, who am I? And why am I here? And what's my purpose in life? And how do I find meaning? Okay, uh, all good questions. And uh, so that's that's a big part of the book. Do you, because you bring that up and it's in your book, obviously, I think you know that you've got the thoughts on this. Do you think that that pursuit of meaning and purpose changes in the face of technology advancing, or do you think that it uh, stays the same? I think it's going to get harder for this next century and a half or so because uh, we spend so much of our life thinking about the way we find purpose in our jobs and, and those kinds of things. And so what happens when you don't have that anymore, right? Uh, when, uh, so that's gonna, be a, uh, that's gonna be a challenge in this next century of a, of a, of a challenge of finding purpose, okay? Um, you know, um, I worked summers in the steel mill to put myself through college, right? You get up and you've got a, a manly job like that, you're out there on the blast furnace, and, and you know you've done a good day's work, um, and you feel satisfaction in that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, and and uh, when you're most of my career, when you're in uh, in tech and you're working 80-hour weeks on another startup, uh, uh, you know you're you're finding a lot of purpose in what you're doing. Well, what happens when some of these, so many of those jobs go away, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, in my book, for example, there's a there's a character, and she is uh, managing a, uh, a space station orbiting the moon. And the purpose of that is to build these um, probes that are going out to try to find exoplanets, right? And she's got a thousand robots up there working on this project. And there's there's people, but they're not a whole lot of them. They're you know a couple hundred, and uh, that's a cool job, right? <laughs> We'd all like to have that job. <laughs> but what happens if you don't have very many of those jobs, right? Well, in this future, uh, you know, there's a law that says you can't work more than 12 hours a week. Because uh, otherwise, there still wouldn't be there'd be even fewer jobs. So, you now imagine that kind of future uh, where you know having a job is uh, kind of a privilege. Well, hmm. something like that is, I think, more likely than not. Um, and that's different. Uh, you know, almost a hundred years ago, um, uh, John Maynard Keynes, um, beginning of the 1900s and through the 1930s, he was an economist, and he actually wrote um, a paper about something to my grandchildren or something. And essentially, the part of the essence of it, he was predicting that 
you know, there's going to be a lot of stuff and the world will change. And by this time, we would be working very few hours, right? Uh, well, he had it off by maybe a, a century or more because I think we're working more hours than we were before. Uh, it certainly hasn't seemed to let up. But, but I actually think that finally, finally, this is going to be true when these robots come along. And, and that's going to happen. So, yeah, it'll be a different world. It's funny because as you're asking that question and you're talking about the future, right? You know, I, I'm thinking about the times that I've lost a job. <laughs> you know, <because laughs> yeah. Laid off, and I'm like, that is one of those questions that that you, that a man digs into is, why do I exist? What is my purpose? And you know, and I guess I try to define purpose as something maybe deeper than what you do. I think you know, we hang our hat on our job. You know, hang the hat like on that hook on the wall, and it's the wrong hook. Right. You know? We exist for more than that, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. So how do we find that as, as you know, men and as human beings? How do we find that real purpose? Well, it's a, it's a broader issue. And I think, um, you know, we will have more time to think about that in the future when we, we will have um, a lot of these basic needs or food, shelter, and all that sort of thing uh, taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy because I keep... I keep, you keep talking about all the robots that are, that will be doing all these things. And I keep thinking, man, like on a smaller scale, we have so many of them now. Like you can plant a garden in your backyard and for a couple thousand bucks, you've got this robot that'll weed, it'll plant, weed, water, take care of it, nurture the whole, the whole time. And you never have to touch it. It'll even pick the fruit and send your note your phone a notification that your tomato is ready. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and uh, and if we think about the progress on this. I was, I'm reading a book now called How the World Really Works. And um, and it had some interesting statistics. It said if you're back in about 1800 and you look at what it took to farm wheat um, and to have two pounds of wheat a kilogram, I think, it took like several hours of work per kilogram, okay? And today with our mechanized farming, if you look at the labor input, it takes about two seconds of labor input to produce that. Okay, so we have this enormous um, mechanization and on automation. Um, if you, if you, um, if anyone's watched the TV show, I don't know if it's still on, called How Things Work, uh, something like that. It's, uh, you know, it's and it's sort of how do you make ping pong balls? How do you make basketballs? How do you make guitars, etc. And there's lots of stuff with factories and 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 if you watch a uh, you know a hundred of those, you'll suddenly go, wait a minute, this is you know order of two thousand, last twenty years or so. Um, you'll, you'll say, wait a minute, they just described this process where there were 20 people on this production line. And then what they did is they, you know, replaced five of them with machines and then they've got, they've got machine and a guy and machine and a guy. And, and then they're doing more and more replacement. And you realize that that's been going on for a long time. And um, all this automation has removed a ton of jobs, which has fundamentally changed um, the working class, right? It's already happening. And uh, in places like, for example, where I came from, um, the Ohio Valley, you know, part of the Rust Belt, um, uh, that had a dramatic change on the, the way life was lived. When I was uh, working my way through college and working in a steel mill, there were 760,000 members of the United uh, uh, Steelworkers. And um, a, um, a decade later, there were 70,000 so. I don't know how many there are today, but I don't think it's a whole lot more, probably fewer. So, so you know, these jobs went away. And um, and the point is, is that there are going to be more of that going away over time. Mm -hmm. And so we'll have a lot of stuff 
but we won't have very many jobs. And and then, so the world really will be fundamentally different in, you know, century, century and a half. So that's our biggest challenge this century. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's worth thinking about, man. So you talked, <laughs> we talked a little bit at the beginning about that, that bioscience, that life science stuff. What, what do you think will change there in medical science that'll, that'll make things different? Yeah. So I was, I first was in bioscience back in 1983 and a company I worked for was involved in the separations chemistry that was actually used to sequence the human genome. Electrophoresis and chromatography are two of the big um, technologies. And at that time, uh, there was a Carrie Mullis uh, invented the technique called PCR, uh, polymerase uh, chain reaction at a company called Cetus, um, you know, across the bay here in San Francisco. And that revolutionized the field, okay? Um, now it's been um, about a decade ago that um, uh, two folks came up with a technique called CRISPR-Cas9. And uh, CRISPR, I think, I think most people agree, is the most important technology in bioscience ever, even more important than PCR. And that is fundamentally changing everything. So, so for example, um, so for example, back before PCR, uh, before uh, CRISPR-Cas9, if you were a, a bioscientist and you're working on, say, um, uh, Parkinson's disease. You might say there's four or five different um, genetic um, mutations that might be a cause of it. And so you want to start investigating if that's true. So you know, you'd take one of them and then you would um, take a mouse and you would figure out how to genetically engineer the mouse to knock that thing out to test it. And it would take you a year to make the mouse, okay? And then you would start doing your test. Um, after CRISPR-Cas9, what you do is you say, I got five of them. You send away an order to an uh, organization at Harvard and they send you back in two weeks, five mice with all of those things in them and you can test them simultaneously. Okay, so that's just an example to say that we have dramatically sped up our ability to um, use the science to produce new good drugs and new cures. And, um, and that's just gonna, revolutionize everything. So um, so I think that what that really means, and most people don't quite understand this, is that we'll have a whole bunch of new drugs coming out and new treatments. So um, so what does that look like in the future? Well, in my book, as an example, uh, there's, uh, there's a device called a MedFlow. You know, it's inserted, uh, it's in 2161, it's a long time in the future, but it's in, in, inserted on your hip and it basically um, automatically or, um, monitors your health and it micro uh, doses various kinds of, um, of chemicals and, uh, and uh, medications to pro prolong your life, to uh, check on things. You, that's how you get your, uh, you get your uh, caffeine. <laughs> you, 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 you dial it up for the right amount of coffee you want and, and, and all that sort of thing. So, uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll have a few of these kind of devices, uh, which most of our audience might suddenly think that sounds really weird. Got this device embedded. But, uh, yeah, that will be pretty normal, I think, for developed countries. Well, I don't even know if that, again, that sounds that weird. I've got a friend who's got an e-stim uh, and it charges with that charging where you don't have to plug it in. You, like, put it on magnetically charges. I've got another friend who's got a, an insulin pump installed 
You yep. know, I don't think the pump is on the inside, but it's a it goes to the inside. You know, I mean, it's not that unrealistic to, yeah. to think about that. But I think about this, right? So, like right now, I've got um, some friends who are older in nursing homes, you know, and they've they've lived past their expiration date. And, mm-hmm. you know, every time something goes wrong, the family rushes the doctors in and they do some kind of treatment or some kind of surgery. And they're, I mean, this guy's like 85 years old. He's ready to go, you know, right. and, we alive, <laughs> and it's not because he wants to stay alive. It's because his family wants him to be alive. He's ready to go, you know, and I've thought a lot about that for myself. You know, my dad got, uh, my dad had cancer and I remember, uh, you know, they, declared that he was cancer free. And then later it came back and he needed a surgery and he, he was so tired after going through all that. He, I remember he told me like, I don't know if I'm strong enough to do this. I don't know if I want to. And I told him, we have to dad, you, you have to, we need you. And I mean, he was young. He was like 67, you know, I think yeah, that is young. Yep. It is young. Yeah. But, um, looking back, you knowing that, you know, the decision to have the surgery is what ended up taking his life. You know, if he hadn't had the surgery, he would have died, but he would have died probably quicker. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but he had the surgery and he ended up dying anyway. And it was not quicker and it was painful. And so I've kind of already decided like, you know, okay, if I'm under a certain age, yeah, I'll go through chemo and all of that. But if I'm over a certain age, you know, and I know where my limit is, I've lived a good life. You know, <laughs> you know, like just let me go. <laughs> well, well, I mentioned earlier that I don't think we'll live forever, forever, uh, but I do think we're going to be able to, you know, extend um, healthy life. Um, I think fairly significantly. You know, maybe 10, maybe twenty years. years. But it takes. It's not as, not as we're not going to be a bunch of crippled old people wanting to die. At, at 80 years old. <laughs> well, I hope not. No, I, I yes. and uh, but you know we're we're we've we all have an expiration date, and I don't think that's going to change. There there are there are some immortal jellyfish. They basically live forever, right? And, and there's experiments. No, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some people experimenting on those, and you know there's a few that hope that we can figure out some uh, code and and crack it. But um, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, you know the whole process of senescence is is so complex. And it's evolutionary, right? Um, you know, our our evolutionary history was um, was working to uh, get us to the point of reproduction, and then after we got past you know age uh, thirty or forty, forget about it, <laughs> and it didn't care anymore. So we're not optimized beyond that. Yeah. Well, I, I was talking to a lady at work today about you know forty. <laughs> 40 stuff started hurting and, I'm, and we all i think we all kind of realized yeah 40s when stuff started hurting man <laughs> well okay but you know the manly stuff you got to work at it you know i'm I, I mean i run i ran a 5k this morning and one yesterday i run a 5k in the morning it's just got to get out there and do it to, to yeah. take the pain <laughs> yep yep and pain becomes your friend i guess that's that's the, right yeah you gotta <laughs> you gotta keep moving so uh you know for everyone just keep on doing that go climb mountains there you go. There you go. Oh, <laughs> uh, Gary, um, I love talking about the future with you because I think you've got a pretty cool vision of it and you can see, yeah, it's, it's based off your experience, based off of science, based off of, yeah, I think that that's pretty neat. So, uh, the name of your book again, what was it? Uh, the book is unfettered journey. Uh, and it is, as I said, it's a uh, futuristic adventure and love story. Um, and uh, you can find it 
uh, in audio, in paperback, hardbound, uh, wherever you buy books. It's all over the place. It's now in uh, eight languages, and um, it has won 11 book awards. So I'm very pleased with that. Wow. It's doing quite Good well. Job. Yeah. Congratulations yeah. on that. Um, we'll make Thanks. sure that we, that we link it in the show notes so our guys can check it out. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, Gary, I like to ask all my guests some questions. And so um, I, I'm really interested to see your answers to this because I think you'll have some good, some good perspective. What do you think it takes to be a man? I think it takes um, being a man of his word. Uh, I, I know one of the uh, the tags for this uh, podcast is a life of honor, and I think when you can look another guy in the eye and you you know that you can trust him, um, that whatever he says is what he's going to do, that's what really makes a man, you know. And uh, that those that aren't like that are less likely to look you back in the eye. Mm. Yeah, I I wish we had two words. I mean, we do. We could call one a male and the other one a man, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, something to delineate, you know, between that guy that has honor and then the guy that doesn't. That's right. <laughs> we have a guy and we have a man. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's. I think that's a great answer. Um, so, uh, that's what I believe. That's the way you have to leave, live your life, I think, so. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I think we need, uh, we might need more guys like that working in tech. <laughs> <laughs> well, th that will maybe uh, eliminate some of those dystopian things that we talked about, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> people who are, people who are operating with a, a set of principles and codes and values that actually put each other first rather than uh, profit and greed and yeah, all of that. <laughs> yeah, and respect for each other, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned a couple of times about military strategy. I'm a, I'm a hobbyist on that. I've visited most of the Civil War battlefields. Abraham Lincoln was one of my heroes. Abe Lincoln was one of those guys that he didn't care who he met. He treated them with respect and as an equal. And he was so well known for that. And I think that's a, a trait to emulate. So, hmm. yeah. I wish we had more Abe Lincolns out there, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. One of my favorite Abe Lincoln stories is he would go up to, when he'd visit the military camps, he would he would go challenge the soldiers and he'd pick up an ax like at the, the end of the handle and hold it out straight in front of him so the ax is up in the air as long. And you, you try to do that. You can't do it for very long. You can't hold it. Uh-huh. strong. And, I mean, he grew up using that ax to split rails. And so he's doing that, and he would challenge his soldiers, and he'd beat them every time. No, well, I I have a certain I have a certain respect for an axe too, <laughs> as as you'll as you'll uh, anyone who reads my book will tell, and that that goes back to a childhood uh, memory. So when I was a kid, uh, we moved into um, a new house that had an acre of land around it, and uh, you know. Family didn't have enough money to do any landscaping. We had to do it ourselves, and it had all these trees on it. So, my uh, my dad uh, got out there and cut them all down. But we had all these stumps that are you know foot tall, and so it was my job to get out there and chop the st stumps out. So, I had a double bitted axe, and I was um, six. <laughs> that probably child abuse today, but you know I got really good. I got really good at using that axe to chop out those stumps. 
<laughs> I, I don't I don't know if that's child abuse or if that was character building. That's why <laughs> that's why you are a man who respects honor, I think, because <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know the value of hard work. <laughs> <laughs> My mother thought it was building character and she's probably right. Yeah. I love it. I love it. That's a great story. <laughs> and Anchor oh, Trees is a lot of stunts too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had a similar experience growing up. I grew up on the uh, on the Allegheny River, right in the backyard, like about twenty miles from the source. And there was a swimming hole in the back. And um, these kids would come down there and party and wreck it. So my dad decided to clear the yard to clear the land back there. And we were always out there, just like hauling brush and clearing little trees. And it wasn't as stumpy probably is that there were small trees, you know, uh -huh. but it was a lot of work, a lot of work. And now my, you know, my, my mom's got this beautiful yard now. So <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Uh, I see the Allegheny river from the, from the back window. So uh, that's great. Uh, so my next question for you is if you could talk to the 10 year old version of Gary. So this is at least a few years into you um, chopping down trees. <laughs> <laughs> what would you tell uh 10 year old Gary? I think I would tell 10-year-old um, Gary, um, learn how to tack. You know, if anyone who's a sailor, uh, you have to, if you're heading upwind, you have to tack. That's because uh, it's just going to blow you back. So you're, you're going to have to tack left and, you know, slowly work your way up and then tack right. And depending on whether the wind is right in the direction that you're trying to go, you're just going to have to tack and tack. And it, takes a lot of work and there is a lot of life that is like that where uh, you're fighting something um, and you're trying to get to where you want to go and um, everything is moving against you and so you're just going to have to work at it and so expect that life involves a lot of tacking but if you work at it um, you're going to get to where you're going where you want to go consistency yeah, I, that's a really, that's good advice for a uh, 40-something-year-old Josh here, so. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I could think of any times, man, you start to run into that obs that uh, obstacle or that, that, you know, thing that's pushing against you in the opposite direction. You're like, okay, I've had enough of this. Let me try something different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, I think uh, some people think that, uh, you know, they, they hear about careers and they think, wow, this this is wonderful. That guy's got it great and that sort of thing. And what you don't see is, uh, you know, like a, like a duck, um, maybe he looks placid on the surface, but paddling like hell underwater. Uh, and so, yeah, that's a lot of life. And, um, you know, that's the, uh, you know, to, to back to your theme, the manliness, um, I think it's, not given up. Uh, my character in the book, Joe, says, never resign. Never resign. I love it. And what is your best advice? And you may have already given it, but <laughs> what is your best <laughs> advice for the men that are listening today? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, this is kind of related, I think. It's that, um, and, and this is my, what I learned from my career, you know, and this is based upon, you know, working in a lot of startups, small companies, and you know, you're, you're, you're there working 80 hour weeks and, and everything seems to be going okay in your area, but you know, the engineering screwed up and <laughs> that didn't work. Uh, and then you go to another company, you're working eight hour weeks and everything's finally getting under control and then the marketing screws up and <laughs> it doesn't work. So my advice is uh, whatever you're doing, take lots of at-bats. 
that's the secret to life. Uh, uh, you know, keep on swinging. Uh, you're going to pop a few out and you're going to get some ground outs and, and all that sort of thing. But you keep on swinging and get lots of at-bats. Uh, who knows what will happen? Yeah, that's how you get a higher batting average is by... <laughs> it to hit, right? or, or that one hit all you need is that one home run right <laughs> right i love it yeah. hey uh gary this has been a fantastic conversation and uh I, I really appreciate it very much what's what's the best way if our guys want to connect with you obviously we've talked about your book and i know we'll link that in the show notes but what what's the best way for guys to follow you and the work that you're doing yeah sure uh, my uh my author website is uh gary f benger dot com uh, that's b-e-n-g-i-e-r garyfbenger.com and um and you can um send me a note at gary at garyfbenger.com so um you know check out my website um please uh please please buy the book <laughs> it's uh um i think it uh it is a interesting speculation on philosophy and the future and uh, all the topics we just talked about josh so uh Thank you for uh, inviting me to share this with your audience. Definitely. I, I love, too, that sci-fi is a cool way to have that conversation, but in the context of uh, <laughs> of a really cool fiction story, too. So that's a neat way to be able to present all that, man. So it's good stuff. Thank you. Yeah. Great. Well, appreciate it, Josh. Thanks so much. Thanks for being on the show, man. When the world all comes crashing down, I do think that there are some skills that each of us need to know and need to have. Can you build a fire? Can you find your own food? And it's hard to picture what that might look like. And I think Gary has a great perspective. So Gary, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I hope that the rest of us can think about and prepare for the future. And, you know, I think the first thing we need to think about is how do I take care of my family? How do I take care of my neighbors? How do I better myself so that I'm prepared for anything that might happen? So I guess that's my encouragement for you guys today. Listen, I really appreciate you guys checking in with, with us and listening to the Manlyhood Mancast. And uh, if you're not a part of our private Facebook group, I want you to go to the Manlyhood Man Cave on Facebook and join the group. We'd love to have you. Introduce yourself. All right, guys. I love you. I care about you. And I'll see you next time. If you want to be a better man, check out our website, manlyhood.com, for blogs, videos, and more from our Manlyhood team. And you can also join our private Facebook group, Manlyhood Man Cave, where you can meet up with a band of brothers who will challenge you and help you on your journey of manhood. This episode is produced by Hatcher Media for manlyhood.com. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, YouTube, or wherever you're listening to the show. Tune in again for more of the Manlyhood Mancast. 